Blog Talk Radio. But there's a reason. There's a reason. There's a reason for this. There's a reason education sucks, and it's the same reason that it will never, ever, ever be fixed. It's never going to get any better. Don't look for it. Be happy with what you got. Because the owners of this country don't want that. I'm talking about the real owners now. The big, re- the wealthy, that, the real owners, the big, wealthy business interests that control things and make all the important decisions. Forget the politicians. They're, they're, they're irrelevant. The politicians are put there to give you the idea that you have freedom of choice. You don't. You have no choice. You have owners. They own you. They own everything. They own all the important land. They own and control the corporations. They've long since bought and paid for the Senate, the Congress, the state houses, the city halls. They've got the judges in their back pockets. And they own all the big media, media news, all the big media companies, so they control just about all of the news and information you get to hear. They got you by the balls. They, they spend billions of dollars every year lobbying, lobbying to get what they want. Well, we know what they want. They want more for themselves and less for everybody else. But I'll tell you what they don't want. They don't want a population of citizens capable of critical thinking. They don't want well-informed, well-educated people capable of critical thinking. They're not interested in that. That doesn't help them. That's against their interests. That's right. You know something? They don't want people who are smart enough to sit around the kitchen table and figure out how badly they're getting fucked by a system that threw them overboard 30 fucking years ago. They don't want that. You know what they want? They want obedient workers. Obedient workers. People who are just smart enough to run the machines and do the paperwork and just dumb enough to passively accept all these increasingly shittier jobs with the lower pay, the longer hours, the reduced benefits, the end of overtime, and the vanishing pension that disappears the minute you go to collect it. And now they're coming for your Social Security money. They want your fucking retirement money. They want it back so they can give it to their criminal friends on Wall Street. And you know something? They'll get it. They'll get it all from you sooner or later because they own this fucking place. It's a big club, and you ain't in it. (laughs) You and I are not in the big club. By the way, it's the same big club they used to beat you over the head with all day long when they tell you what to believe. All day long, beating you over the head in their media, telling you what to believe, what to think, and what to buy. The table is tilted, folks. The game is rigged. And nobody seems to notice. Nobody seems to care. Good, honest, hard-working people, white collar, blue collar, doesn't matter what color shirt you have on. Good, honest, hard-working people continue. These are people of modest means. Continue to elect these rich cocksuckers who don't give a fuck about them. They don't give a fuck about you. They don't give a fuck about you. They don't care about you at all. At all. At all. Yeah. You know? And nobody seems to notice, nobody seems to care. That's what the owners count on, the fact that Americans will probably remain willfully ignorant of the big red, white, and blue dick that's being jammed up their assholes every day. Because the owners of this country know the truth. It's called the American dream, because you have to be asleep to believe it. Hello, and welcome to this edition of E-Radio, additional episode of my third party candidate series hosting candidates from various third parties uh, with hopefully the intention of eventually hosting a debate between individuals within those parties for their nomination and then eventually a series of general election debates where I will ask the candidates questions that the mainstream media will be asking the mainstream candidates to give the um, other basically the unknown parties unfortunately an opportunity to answer 
This is particularly um, relevant to those of you who are interested in trying to, you know, find somebody else to vote for. If you're disgusted with the idea of the possibility of having to vote for somebody like Joe Biden or Donald Trump. Um, if this is your first time tuning in, you can take a look at my archives uh, going all the way back to 2008 when I started this show. I was part of the Ron Paul revolution initially, and then I was a libertarian delegate to the convention. Uh, I worked for Senator Mike Gravel. I ran for Congress as a libertarian, but my, uh, my political beliefs have definitely evolved in a great deal um, in that time. So I can't promise you'll agree with everything that you hear in my archives, but there are also a lot of good interviews there with documentary filmmakers, scientists, activists, uh, just lots of different um, perspectives on activism in my archives. I do have a Patreon if you want to support the show, but I don't really expect anybody to be doing that right now with the pandemic. So I want to bring, uh, welcome my guest, uh, Libertarian candidate for president, Arvin. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Neil. Now, the first question that I always ask uh, pretty much any guest is, what was the precipice for you? What was the moment that made you go from being just somebody who perhaps observed politics casually, if there ever was such a period in your life, to being somebody who decided, no, that's not enough for me. I've got to get involved. So for most of my life, I was essentially a non-voter. I was politically apathetic in the extreme, because I simply didn't think that anything inside of politics could make a significant difference, either for better or worse. I simply thought it just didn't really matter. What really changed things for me was when I saw the Wall Street bailout happening. And I saw all this money going to people who had failed at their jobs because they were incompetent in ways that they should have been able to avoid. When I saw that happening, Solely because they were politically connected, I realized that I wanted to break the system that would allow that to happen. And today, both through education, through politics, I'm working to help people opt out of the system, get out of the system entirely. If I'm president, I'm going to monkey wrench the federal government to the point that it can no longer interfere with your life ever again. My goal is to end the welfare state, to end the warfare state, and end the income tax. Okay. Well then, came right out guns a blazing. Um, <laughs> so the first area that I've been covering with all of the candidates of the um, all the parties I've covered so far is the topic of foreign policy. There will be a couple of follow-up questions specifically geared towards this issue, but the first basically um, is an opportunity for you to give an idea of what you as president feel that the foreign policy of the United States should be when and if we should use the military, etc., I want to I want to tie that into current events if you don't mind. Today sure, we are you can dealing. Any way you sure. like. <laughs> okay. So today we're dealing with a foreign policy nightmare, a total collapse. That is not a an error of government. For once, it's not an error of government. It's something that government simply could not avoid. Now I've said many times in public, on social media, traditional media, and here on your show that China has been lying about their number of cases of coronavirus by a lot. They've been, their information is implausible in the extreme. Now, the, the World Health Organization has to pretend to believe it so they don't create a diplomatic situation. The U.S. government has to pretend to believe the World Health Organization so they don't create a situation. So while private groups 
every doctor, every epidemiologist I've spoken to, every expert in the area has said, yeah, China's clearly lying, that their numbers have no bearing on reality whatsoever. The U.S. government is caught because they can say, yeah, China's been lying and create a diplomatic crisis of one kind, or they can pretend to believe it, creating a medical crisis of another kind. So when I say that we should not be involved with other countries, I, at first, I certainly mean that there should be no military invention, intervention ever, none. We should never be involved in a foreign country's civil war no matter what. If I'm president, I'm shutting down foreign military bases, I'm bringing the troops home, I'm leaving NATO, and your tax money will never be spent ever again to pursue a foreign civil war. But diplomatically, I also believe that the U.S. government, it's not a job they can do. Today, the U.S. government has to pretend – and only the government does it. Every American doesn't do that. Has to pretend in order to appease China that Taiwan simply doesn't exist. They have to pretend something that is so it's such in such a violation of political and geographic reality, geographical reality. They have to do that. So I believe that the way to handle all international exchanges of any kind is through voluntary trade, voluntary exchange of information free and open discussion, a free and open trade. I oppose all tariffs, uh, that, and, and I oppose all sanctions. That, to me, is what foreign policy should look like. It should be done at the individual and at the business level only. No intervention whatsoever. Um, I understand where you're coming from with that. Now, the follow-up questions kind of present us with a situation that, uh, you know, so the first one that I generally ask is, so let's say we're in a circumstance where, we have a terrorist attack by a foreign power, uh, 9-11-esque, um, mm -hmm. and you are the president. Uh, at that point, how do you handle that situation and respond to it? So I've, I've told many people in many state conventions this, which is I have never, ever been smart enough in my life to know what the strategic thing to do is, but I've always been smart enough to figure out what the truth is. Every time in my life that I've bent the truth or colored it or just lied outright, it's never gone well. And every time I've spoken the truth, while there's often additional pushback, it always, always is the right answer. And so in that case, if it was me and I was the president during 9-11, I would have told the truth. I would have said, we have been attacked. You can see that. I would have said, you want, all of us want to strike back at some foreign country. But this was not done by a foreign country. This was done by a group of people. We could mount a massive military endeavor. We could have a huge infantry war to go after five or six people, which, by the way, is what we did. The cost in human life will be staggering. The cost in treasure will be staggering. It will not achieve what you want it to achieve. It will only make this worse. So while we, of course, every part of us wants to go just start busting heads, even if they're the wrong heads, we might be silly enough right now to attack the wrong country, which is what actually happened. Uh, in 9-11, in I mean, it's not that the Afghan government didn't attack the United States, but people from Afghanistan attacked the United States. The United States government went after Iraq in a bewildering bit of nonsense that makes exactly as much sense as punching a wall if your computer's not working. Yeah, it gets some of the adrenaline out. But it doesn't solve the problem in any significant way. So I would say, and in that situation, I would say we need to actually address this at the root. And the root of the 9-11 attacks and the root of most terrorist attacks has been an intentionally unnecessarily provocative foreign policy of getting involved in everybody else's business. So the way I would do it, I would make the United States 
the biggest and most prosperous Switzerland that the world has ever seen, that I would bring all the troops home. I would let countries in, in the Middle East and everywhere else fend for themselves. They want to fight each other, fight each other. They want to be peaceful, be peaceful. I would cease any kind of involvement. So it simply would never make sense for a terrorist to ever attack the United States ever again, that we would be the last person, uh, the last country, the last group on their list to ever attack ever again. And so I would handle it by telling the absolute truth that the backwards foreign policy of previous administrations, and if I was president for more than a day of my own administration in that case, although I would not allow that kind of foreign policy to continue past one or two seconds, but let's say it had, that, these, that this is a predictable result of an invasive foreign policy. And I would stop that foreign policy. I would leave NATO. I would bring the troops home. And I would let say, we're not your enemy. If you want to attack somebody, attack somebody else. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, the next follow-up question would be to put you in a current situation. Again, kind of under the context, the majority of these questions I ask will be, assume that you are president of the United States right now. So it's not just framing like perhaps what your personal beliefs about something are, but also just about how you would want to apply presidential authority. Mm -hmm. um, so the circumstances in Syria, mm -hmm. um, if you feel you'd want me to elaborate, I will, but I imagine you, you seem pretty studied. You already know. So how would you handle it? I would pull all, all military involvement out. I would pull all diplomatic involvement out. I would pull all financial involvement out. Here's the thing. I live, over, I live in, in uh, Bethesda, Maryland, not very far from D.C. I live maybe 10 yards from D.C. And yet, if you go to the Annapolis State House in Maryland, remember, we, are, we border D.C. We're, we're, we sh you know, D.C. was created from land out of Maryland. If you go to the State House in Annapolis and something is being passed on from D.C., you'll hear them complaining about D.C. telling us what to do. And that's Maryland. Now, D.C. culture and Maryland culture, they might be different, but they're not really that different, and they're also just the same. American culture and Syrian culture are not the same. And the idea that D.C. that can't even manage its own public schools can somehow manage the culture in Syria in such a complex and volatile region is laughable. So I would seize any and all involvement immediately. I would stop doing what we're doing right now. To give you an example of how bad this has happened in, in, in previous months and years, there have been times where groups armed by the Department of Defense have been fighting groups armed by the CIA. So essentially all we've done is taken a conflict, given both sides powerful American weapons, and turned what should be fought with sticks and spears into an unmitigated bloodbath. And I'm going to stop that type of policy when you have shifting alliances, when you have such level, such a, a culture that is so different from our own, a language that's different from our own, I would not get involved in something that is not our business and not within our ability to solve. Okay. So that moves us on. You, you touched a little bit on this just because, I mean, in a lot of ways, these things do kind of inevitably intertwine. But we're now in the COVID-19 situation. Mm -hmm. I first want to give you an opportunity to um, address what you had done if you were the president three months ago. So to rewind the clock a little bit, you know, back to when we're getting, you know, initial warnings about this um, and then go. So I do want to say a few a few just general points of fact. <clears throat> I was the first <clears throat> the first libertarian candidate to suspend all campaign travel. And I want to point out that I am not in a high risk group. I'm 40 years old. I'm in a low risk group. I don't have any immune issues, at least none that I know of. 
But I chose to suspend the travel because when I thought of the libertarians that I most look up to, a lot of them are in the high-risk group. You know, D. Frank Robinson, who, who founded the party, Dr. Ruert, uh, who, who's uh, such a great influencer who, who I've looked up to so many years. There have been so many people who I look up to, and the idea that you know, somebody's going from state to state is the definition of a disease vector because I would, there's a high chance of me being asymptomatic. I might not even have known that I was a disease vector. So because of that, I chose voluntarily to stop my own campaign. This is something I've been working at. Not, not, not my own campaign, sorry. My own campaign travel. This is something that I've been sure. working at for years. I've been dedicated. I've been in the libertarian movement for 10 years. It, it was not a small decision. So the first thing is I would lead by example. And I would say, listen, this is a risk. I would not have waited. I would not have trusted the the uh, data from China. I didn't trust the data from China. You can you know, look at my Facebook post where I've said many times China is lying. They're not telling the truth. This is not reliable information. Uh, I would do some of the things actually that that the current governor of New York is doing. He's doing the things that I've argued in favor of for a long time. He's letting foreign doctors practice medicine now because we need them. I've said for a long time that the ban on foreign doctors practicing medicine is self-destructive and insane, and it needs to stop. And that ban has been lifted. I would let a lot of nonviolent people out of prison, which is which which the governments are already doing right now. You know, in a crisis. People start wanting to do things that make sense. Crises make people open to libertarian ideas. Uh, places have started to allow home delivery alcohol sales, drive-through alcohol sales. They've gotten rid of their stupid, petty, nonsense laws because things are serious now. When things are serious, people start getting serious about the law, and that makes them more libertarian. And we've seen that happening across the country. But I wouldn't handle the crisis the way it's been being handled right now. The current approach of mass quarantine – and remember, I'm somebody that voluntarily self-quarantines. So I'm not opposed to the idea. But forced mass quarantine is taking a bad problem and making it much worse. If this continues like this and we end up with 30 percent unemployment, we're going to see well, you know, the direct cause of, of economic downturns, malnutrition and whatnot, and the secondary consequence, which is violence and crime. And we're going to end up losing more people through that secondary thing than we would have lost the first thing. So I would have gone uh, encouraged the engineering solution rather than the behavioral solution. And what that means is in this situation right now, in this situation today, we could simply – if you're wearing a full-face respirator, you're fine. You're not going to transfer it. If you're wearing a, a full-face respirator and gloves, you're, you're not going to transfer it. You're going to reduce the transmission rate by 99.9%. And that's going to take the, the number of casualties from an unacceptable level, which is you know, 2 to 3 million – to an acceptable level, which is two to 3,000. Is that a great number? No, I would prefer it to be zero. But you don't make plan A sinking the economy because you're afraid of making a tough decision. Leaders have to make hard decisions, and this is one of those hard decisions. Now, the current situation, the current quarantine approach is still going to have at least two or 3,000 deaths anyway. So it's not that this is any better. This is just emotionally more like we're making a bigger deal of it. If I was president, there would be no stock market collapse. The only financial news you would see is that you know a couple of suppliers like 3M and who and whatnot that make full face respirators, you know their stocks might go up five or six percent. That would be the only financial news. Nothing else would be happening, and that's what I mean when we need to have free market intelligent solutions like improved equipment rather than the absurd government level solutions, which are just having the effect of turning a medical problem into a worse medical problem plus an economic problem.
Okay. Now, to expand on this situation, um, I guess the the next question would be, I mean, you pointed out mm-hmm. that you voluntarily quarantined. Do you feel that there's ever a moment in which the government should, um, you know, if, for example, I mean, actually, I'll give you a perfect example that I brought sure. up before. The group of people who decided to crowd up on the beach for spring break in Florida, um, mostly young people, obviously. And Oops. the interviews with a lot of them were like, well, if I get the disease, I get the disease. It's not going to stop me from partying, et cetera. You know, and it puts kind of a gray area situation for some people because now you have a group of people who arguably in some way could be violating the non-aggression principle, but at the same time, it's their free choice. So uh, what is your take on that? And what, if any, action would you have taken as president? Um, Do you feel like a government-enforced lockdown would ever be the appropriate response? Do you feel that there would ever be any kind of government response to situations like large groups of people congregating and endangering others? No, because that's not something that needs a behavioral solution. That's something that can be addressed with an engineering solution. So I would say this, get a respirator, you can get a get a really nice one for a hundred bucks if you want to. You can get a regular one for twenty bucks if you want to. Um, I would say wear it. I would say if you are in a very high risk area, you should you should probably quarantine. And if you want to be something other than a total a hole and you're young, you can self quarantine. And I would lead by example. I'd say I am self quarantining. It's not that I think there's any risk to me, but I recognize that as living in part of a voluntary human culture, I'm not going to put people and an unnecessary level of risk because I want to party on the beach. And I would encourage other people to do that. And yes, I would call them out, and I would make fun of them, and I would verbally abuse them, but I would not use government force on them. That's the difference. Would I encourage employers to never hire them? Yes, of course. If I had a business, would I be like, yeah, somebody that irresponsible has no business here? Of course. Would they feel the punishment of the free market? Yes. Would they have a hard time getting a job for the rest of their lives? Of course. But I would not use governmental force to stop them. Okay. Um, So that brings us on to healthcare. So the framing of this question, essentially, obviously, you know, there's the issue of you being president involved with it. But the framing of this question is, uh, what would you do, if anything, um, to encourage the, you know, the possibility that anybody, regardless of their economic condition, would have access to health care? So that's, that's a really good question. And so we have to look at the two parts of, of, of health care. One is, how much money do you have to spend? And second, how much does the health care cost? And those are basically only two variables. If you have a lot of money and the health care costs a lot, it doesn't matter. And if you have a little money and the health care costs a little, it doesn't matter. If you have a lot of money and the health care costs very little, that's the ideal situation. So I look at this as, well, where, where, what's the real issue here? Is it that people don't have enough money to spend, or is that health care costs more than it should in the natural order of things? And everything that I've seen, everything that I've studied has convinced me firmly that the price of health care has been artificially inflated on purpose by organizations like the American Medical Association, one of the largest, most powerful unions in the world, that works to restrict competition, just like all unions do, in order to drive up the price of medicine. So here are some of the things that I would do to drop the price of medicine. I would want to see happen to all of medicine what's already happened to LASIK, where it's gone from being a few thousand dollars an eye to a few hundred dollars an eye. I want that kind of downward price pressure on everything. The reason that happened with LASIK, no government involvement. But if you look at where government is involved, things like EpiPen, you have rudimentary technology that's gone from being about 100 bucks a syringe 
to now several hundred dollars. That's the effect of allowing price pressure to not be part of something. There needs to be price pressure, and that means some people need to say, I can't afford this unless you lower the price, and people have to either lower the price or go out of business. If people were paying for EpiPen out of pocket, it would cost $10 right now. Because they're paying for it indirectly, it costs $600 right now. So here's what I would do. First, the laws that say that foreign doctors can't practice medicine, I would get rid of those laws, just as is already happening in New York, finally, at least temporarily. I would get rid of those laws. We need to have more doctors. We need more primary care doctors, whatever. We just need more doctors so that the price goes down. There's going to be more doctors. The best doctors in Switzerland has just as much right to practice medicine in America as the worst doctor in America has the right to practice medicine in America. And if you don't want to go to that doctor, just don't. No one's saying you have to go, but he should be able to buy or to rent a facility and offer his services that he's worked hard to develop. So first, end all those laws. Second thing, I would end all the laws against reimportation of drugs. Right now, American drug companies sell identical drugs and identical packaging to other countries for lower cost, but Americans can't buy it from those countries and have them shipped over here. Listen, if an American drug company wants to pursue an idiotic thing, they're allowed to do that. That's fine. But I don't think that our taxes should go into those custom protections. So I would cease any tax money. If, if uh, pharmaceutical companies want to do it themselves, go ahead, but we're not going to do it. We're not going to damage our health and raise our costs to suit your idiotic needs, so I will not tolerate that. I'll end that right away. The FDA, I would end the FDA entirely. Uh, Dr. Ruert's research and many other the great uh, scientists and researchers have shown that because the FDA adds an 11-year delay to new medicines plus billions of dollars in cost, it is actually killing more people than it's saving by a lot. It's also, if you have a rare disease, because they've driven up the cost of, of, of production so high, you're never going to see a cure because it's impossible for a company to recoup its losses. So I want that cost to go down. The way to bring it down is to get rid of the FDA. It doesn't work. It's not even being used by doctors who routinely prescribe things off-label, which means they pres- it's approved for one thing, and then the doctor prescribes it for something else entirely. It's a joke. It's a waste of money. I would get rid of it completely right now. So in that situation, here's what you're going to see. You're going to see much lower costs, way lower costs, and much better service. I want to see 1950s-level service where you had doctors coming to your house, but with modern technology. And we can have that if we just get the government completely out of it. Okay. So um, that was – I get you. Did you have any follow-ups on healthcare you wanted, or are we good? Yeah, I mean, if you have health, if you have questions, if, if there's if there's something that you feel I didn't clarify, or, or there's something else that you think. Oh you're, no, no. You're um, I guess here. well, you know, something that does, this is just like a personal curiosity. But sure. does that mean that you are pro or against the idea of companies owning patents on drugs? I think that if somebody wants to own a patent, that's that's fine. But it's also their problem to enforce it. I mean, that's that's one of the things that you see this is one of the re- things that actually made me going for, go from being a minarchist to an anarchist because i saw that laws even laws that i roughly agreed with morally were never enforced properly they always find some way the government always finds some way to enforce medical patents just fine and that's a difficult and expensive and burdensome thing to do but that same government when it comes to real crimes of moral heinousness and violence sexual assault, 
they can't seem to find the resources to process rape kits, which means that if somebody has been sexually assaulted, they get the evidence collected. Government simply just not processing it. And so when I see how laws by the government are enforced in ways that entirely benefit the powerful, but in no way protect the people who need actually need protection, to me, that's where we say get the government out of it. And the government has shown this even in treaties. A lot of our foreign treaties have added things like, you know, that country has to respect U.S. Um, uh, music patents, like they can't pirate music over there. But it's totally fine with human rights violations, you know, violations of freedom of the press. All of that's totally fine. They're not going to fight those fights. They're going to fight the fights that matter to the 0.0000001% of the richest Americans. And so I don't believe that the government should be involved in enforcing that. Companies want to do that and find some way to do it, by all means. Just as software companies have found ways to protect their, their software without the government getting involved. Uh, and medical companies, if that's that so important to them, let them do it. Today's medical companies, though, are abusing the patent system. They are changing. They'll, you know, when the patent's about to run out, they'll change one inactive ingredient. And so now it's a new drug, and they recycle the time for. They sort of reset the patent clock, and and that level of abuse shows that this is not working. So I'm just going to not let it work by getting rid of it. Okay. So that brings us to education. Um, obviously, most of the voters that we have nowadays are concerned about college education, whether the government should or should not be involved in it, and to what extent that they should. Um, understanding, again, that the frame would be what role do you think the president would have um, or not have um, in the making sure that every citizen, regardless of their economic situation, has access to an education, specifically college or some form of um greater career education beyond K through 12. So this is an area where, where the government's own actions are, they really give you good information. So the first thing I want to address to anybody listening, that you don't need a college degree. And in fact, even the government recognizes that when the stakes are high, they don't rely on college degrees. For their diplomats, and, and in the current situation, which yeah, obviously I want to change, but in the current situa- situation, U.S. diplomats are fairly important for our foreign policy. To be a diplomat, they don't care if you have a degree or not. They just care if you can pass a really hard test. And whether you just sit at home and study for it or you go to Harvard or you, you know, spend 25 years with private tutors, whatever it is, however you do it, they don't care. They just care how much you know. So goal-oriented education exists both for government, but they also exist when there's areas – of you know things like huge amounts of money, uh, you have actuarial exams and financial service and financial sector exams, because when things actually matter, they're not going to trust degrees. But let's go to the question of those who do want degrees. I think that most people would agree that if they had the choice between paying a lot and paying a little, they'd prefer to pay pay little. You know, all of the other things being equal. And the way to do that, just as in medicine, is to bring price pressure back. Today, the government is basically guaranteeing loans of $200,000 to anyone who wants it, so colleges charge these astronomical tuitions, which they started doing as soon as government started guaranteeing financial loans for college. What I would want to see is something that's much more similar to the way that the private sector does loans, which is it evaluates if you have a small business, you want to get a loan from a bank, they evaluate your business idea, they look at your facilities, they see what you're about, and then they choose or choose to give a loan or choose to reject the loan based on all of that. The same thing can happen in higher education. If you say, yeah, I'm a straight D student, I want to to major in social justice and I have no job prospects and I want to borrow $350,000 to do it, the bank will say no because they recognize that that risk is not worth it to them. 
the risk should be taken on by the private bank. It should not be dumped on the taxpayer at all. The result of that type of policy is this. Most people are not going to get $200,000 loans. Most people are not going to get $100,000 loans. Most people are not going to get $50,000 loans. So colleges will have two choices. Either they go out of business or they lower their price. And while I'm sure that some colleges will choose either of those two options, most colleges are going to go with the lower the price option, and they will find ways to drop the cost to where they were before the government got involved in it. Listen, Harvard was a famous college before the government started funding it, and it's going to be a famous college long after. We don't have to pay extra. We can just let the free market lower the cost. And if college was five or $600 a year, college debt would never be a problem ever again. Okay. So now we move on to abortion. Uh, sometimes I almost hate asking this question because it seems almost like a red herring because it never changes regardless of who gets elected president. But it is something that's important to many voters. So now, um, again, once it's, you know, thinking from the perspective of a president, I guess you do have some power over it because you could appoint Supreme Court justices who could rule one way or the other. But this also give you an opportunity just to give your own philosophical perspective on the issue of abortion and a woman's right to choose. So I've spoken to many people who have been in the situation of an unwanted pregnancy. I've spoken to people who have had abortions. I've chosen people who have chosen not to have abortions. I've spoken to people who were sexually assaulted, who were raped, and decided to keep the baby and were very grateful that they did. I've spoken to people with the exact opposite experience. I've spoken to a very large number of people. And aside from a couple of crazies on Twitter, I have yet to actually meet in real life, anybody who is super proud and excited to have an abortion. Everyone agrees that if abortions are not morally wrong, they're at least not optimal. That's not plan A for anybody. Nobody says, man, I really want to have an abortion. That's not a real thing. That's, that's something that you might see on the Internet, but I've yet to see it talking to hundreds of people from all across the political spectrum, all ages, all socioeconomic levels. Nobody thinks it's a good thing. So with that basic bit of agreement, I think we can go. We can do a lot. The question comes down to should there be more abortions or less? I think, well, I think we can all agree that it should be less. At least I certainly think there should be less. Should there be none, that would be the ideal number. The ideal number of abortions to me is zero. To me, I don't see what the difference is between, a, between an 8.9-month-old fetus and a 9.1-old infant. To me, it's kind of the same thing. And so I don't view it morally different in any particular way from murder. But as a libertarian, I look at things in a practical way, which is what needs to happen to reduce the number. A government law against it isn't going to work. It's going to have no effect on the number and make it more dangerous, which is what happened in the past. So what I would want to do is to be, once again, clear and open and honest and say this is a wrong thing to do. This is morally wrong. You shouldn't do it. Here are things you can do to avoid it. But I would also want to make the abortion much, 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 much less tempting. Today, the U.S. government has made – has put so many hurdles to private adoption that it's ridiculous. They've driven up the price of private adoption to several thousand dollars for no reason, for no reason at all. And I'd want the government to get out of the adoption market entirely, make it not just – easy to get an adopt to, to have an adoption but arguably even 
even where even where some where somebody who get who 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 gives up their baby to for an adoption might even have some sort of a small financial incentive or or at least small financial recompense so that they're not in this in addition to this emotional state to this dire financial state where how am I going to provide for this the free market here is trying to handle it we already have a waiting list there are waiting lists to get babies there are people who have unwanted babies Ideally, this is that you know ideal, theoretical, perfect economic situation which can only be messed up by a government. So to me, get government out of adoption, make it easier, get rid of all the red tape and nonsense, and let the families who want kids adopt kids from the mothers who can't take care of them at that time. And here's the thing. No one is going to be more invested in their biological child's future than the mother. Not the government, not the state, not social services, not child protective services. Nobody's going to care more. We can trust the mothers to make at least as good a decision as the government, if not a many, many, many thousands of times better decision than the government ever possibly could. That was an interesting answer, and what uh, what you said just kind of brought up a memory of mine was that it occurred to me mm-hmm. that when I was a kid, you know, occasionally we might have a cat or a dog that hadn't been fixed yet, and so we would have kittens or puppies, and then we'd mm-hmm. put up a sign for free kittens, and they'd be gone in a week, you know, mm-hmm. and I never understood why there was all this struggle to get these animals adopted, and then I, my daughter wanted to adopt a cat, and it cost <laughs> me like $150, and I was like, oh, well, that would be why. Yeah. Um, anyway, pardon my uh, little personal anecdote there. No, but, I that, just, but that's, that's a really interesting point, though, because, I mean, it's $250 is enough to make you say, like, whoa, that's kind of a lot. Now imagine that that was like $5,000 or ten or 15000 sure. and that and that's where it comes down to. I mean, there's a lot of young couples who might – who can certainly provide for an infant, but they might not have an extra $25,000 in cash sitting around their bank. Right. Oh, that's a good, solid point. So, Okay. You're making great time here, so let's move on to the environment. The environment question has Mm -hmm. two major factors, the first of which just being general environment, you know, just environmental issues, and then the second of which is global warming or climate change, um, and what you feel, if any, role you as the president, the government, should have in these issues. Sure. I want to talk first about an environmental position that I've said many times, often been attacked for, booed for, which is that if the goal is to protect the environment, to really protect the environment, not to just do placebo things like recycling, which has basically next to no net effect, but if the goal is to actually improve air quality, improve water quality, to make the environment better, there are two things that we can do as a society. There are two things that will make a major difference. The first is telework. Because if you don't have people burning gas for two hours every day going and two hours every day coming, and the second is homeschool, those are the two things that will have the biggest environmental impact of anything we could possibly do. Now, while the mechanism by which I've been proven right is unpleasant, it still has, at the very least, shown that that does work. Because people are teleworking, because people are homeschooling right now, we see the best air quality we've had. We've seen dolphins come back to the canals of Venice. We've seen staggering improvements to the environment in a, spe- in a period of a couple of weeks. I mean, this hasn't been going on for five years. I mean, it might feel like it, but it's been going on for a few weeks. And we've seen such incredible improvement. 
So the first thing I want to say is you can do a lot more through voluntary action than by force. And the specific voluntary actions, telework and homeschool. Telework and homeschool, if that becomes the norm for everyone who can do it, and for most, you know, white-collar type jobs, telework is perfectly fine. And for, you know, for education, homeschool is usually many, many times better. That's the thing that's going to get to help the environment. But I want to also speak about how to make environmental improvements long-lasting and worldwide. And we talk about global warming. We don't talk about, you know, Maryland warming or Queens warming (laughs) or, you know, Maine warming. And so in that case, we need to have voluntary adoption of technology. You know, if you take a look at a cell phone, what do we see on that cell phone? A low power screen, environmental technology. That's a green technology right there. It uses much much less electricity than an old-time CRT screen. Now, I tell you this. If we told China that that everyone in China was no longer allowed to use a, a low power screen, they would just do it anyway. We would have to the level we would have to go to war and they would still do it. There's no way to stop people from using that green technology. And but do you know why? It's because it won in the free market. It is an actual superior technology. It's economically and environmentally superior. It has the the technological advantage of it doesn't weigh like 47 pounds like a CRT monitor, so you can actually make it portable. So because of that, it wins, and it gets voluntary mass adoption. And that only happens because it had to compete. Now, you look at other supposed green technologies that are basically being given you know, green technology affirmative action. They're being held to a lower standard. And, yeah, you can force people in Maryland to use it, or you can bribe people in Virginia to use it, or you can, you can you know, socially shame a few people in California into using it. But in California to using it, but it's you know it's not going to happen in, in the rest of the world. China routinely lies about everything. They're not they're going to certainly lie about this. Other countries simply don't have an enforcement mechanism to you know it's, it's not like you know some of the it's not, it's not like every country even has an infrastructure by which they could force people to do that if they were willing to. So the only thing that can actually affect environmental on the scale that we need are things that are voluntarily adopted, and so that means ending green subsidies. If a green technology can compete fairly, it's going to be adopted. We've seen that with Tesla. Those are expensive cars, and they have waiting lists because they're better. I mean, they just have advantages. They're less annoying to deal with. They don't pollute. They're quieter. I mean, they, it's one on many levels, and so people want it. So it's not a question of how to subsidize it, but rather take away all subsidies so that the green technologies can actually effectively compete, and then you won't be able to pry them out of anybody's hands. Now, as far as, um, I guess, to kind of put this into perspective, as far as, like, how an individual would act in this circumstance, you know, we're also talking about just people polluting the area in general, and this always kind of creates a circumstance. So, for example, you have land. The land is connected to an aquifer, um, that aquifer, you know, is actually used by like the whole area, you know, of individual landowners. So that, you know, and then a company moves in, builds a factory and starts polluting the aquifer that everybody is using. Mm-hmm. Um, how would, how do you feel if any way, you know, that a president or the government agencies in general should respond to something like that? So the, this is one of those things that's handled by property rights, which is, you know, to what extent do you have, like, what do you have rights over? If there's an aquifer on your land or underneath your land and somebody else poisons it from a different direction, then, yeah, they've, they've attacked – they've essentially initiated an attack on you. 
Now, there are many ways to settle these disputes. We see private sector ways to handle handle dispute. We see government ways to handle dispute. Generally speaking, though, the private sector ways tend not to favor big companies as much, and they tend to be much less painful. So a simple example of private sector dispute resolution that I've used is every so often I'll order something on Amazon, and maybe it's the wrong size, maybe it's the wrong color, maybe they just don't want it. And so now there's a dispute. The, the company believes that they send me the right thing. I believe otherwise. And it's something that I could take to small claims court, and that would be terrible and miserable, and nobody would want to do it. What do I actually do? I just pick from a drop-down box um, why I don't want this item. And a lot of times, because of that atmosphere of simple civility, either I just send it back, or if it's something very, very cheap, like a dollar or two, then often the company will say, yeah, just keep it. Don't worry about it. That's the civility that comes from private sector dispute resolution. On the other hand, when you see government handle dispute resolution, we see it favor who? Always the biggest, most powerful, most lobbyist-centered companies. You know, with Amazon, when we dis- the, 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 the disputes on Amazon always go in the customer's favor, but the customer's always the little guy, right? Whoever you're buying from is a bigger company than you are, especially if that company is Amazon. They're a much bigger company than you are. But that private sector dispute resolution favors the little guy, not out of niceness, but out of self-interest for Amazon. Now, look at the way that the government has handled disputes, the code of pipeline. They've trampled on the rights of the little guy every time. They trample on the rights every time. When it comes to the example you're talking about, I can give you a parallel example. What you're describing is exactly akin to situations where big, powerful companies like Monsanto have allowed their genetically engineered corn to pollute the neighboring corn. And then who gets in trouble? Not Monsanto. Oh, no. They get to take the little guy to court. Their lawyers beat them to submission. And then the person who was violated by Monsanto now has to pay Monsanto. That's what you get when you put the government in charge of this. When you put the powerful in charge that are favoring the powerful, you don't get fairness. You don't get equity. You don't get any of that. So in this situation with the aquifer, what technology exists for that right now? I don't know. My guess is probably not much because people are relying on behavioral solutions. But what if there were just aquifer guard companies? We have guards for all kinds of things. We have filters for all kinds of things. What if people said, like, yeah, here's my house. I'm, I'm selling my house. By the way, there's full-scale aquifer guards all the way down to this level. You know, those are the types of things that can be handled through innovation and technology. They don't have to be handled through behavioral resolution. And so there's so much more that we can do if we let the free market figure out better ways to solve it than if we let the forced government market, the, I don't want to call it market, if you let the government basically create laws that only ever favor the most powerful interests. Okay. Now, I guess, do you feel that you've addressed the global warming issue sufficiently? Because that does kind of put a situation where we're discussing, um, I mean, again, just to be clear, I don't have a dog in this fight. I actually mm-hmm. don't, I'm not convinced one way or the other about global warming, but it is important to a lot of voters, which is why I'm pushing it. So sure. the question would be that um, now you have a circumstance where essentially the habitability as a whole is in danger, and you have to figure out how to address that you know, with libertarian principles along sure. with you know, now I have some government force behind what it is that I'm doing. Sure. So, so the first thing is, is you know, there's, there's a lot of misinformation out there, which is whether a person believes that global warming can be man-made or not – Every air quality expert and researcher that I've ever spoken to has always said the same thing. It's particulate emissions that are far more dangerous than gas emissions. 
the particulate emissions, that's what causes lung cancer, that's what causes a whole host of other diseases, that's what compromises immune systems and lets you know, other diseases spread more quickly. It's the particulate emissions that are by far the worst problem. So while we, you know, while we address the, the other emissions, you know, I think we should also focus on the first thing because it is the worst part. The way to address that, you know, as, as I've said before, as I'm saying again, Use technology. The, the idea that, that you have to work in one place and live in a different place is a recent phenomenon. I mean, for most of human history, you worked and lived in the same place because why would you need to separate them? You know, we work, you, you sleep and eat in about the same place. You don't, we don't think it's strange that you sleep and eat in the same general building. In the same way, it's not, it's not necessary nor historically normal for people to work and live in two totally different areas, especially areas that are, you know, 10, 20 miles apart. For most of history, if you were a farmer, you lived on your farm. If you were an artisan, you lived in a shop above your your your. So you lived in a home above your shop. You, you worked and lived, and that reduced that transportation cost. The biggest contributor right now to particulate em- emissions in the United States is transportation, most of which does not need to happen. Most work can be done remotely. It takes investment. You know, my company, we were an education company, which means we have to deal with not just adults, but of course teenagers and young kids who have you know, all kinds of both technological and behavioral issues that you have to think about. It was not simple for us to move an in-person system to an online system. It took years of experimentation and whatnot, but it created a better system. Long before coronavirus, two or three years ago, we realized that our online system had surpassed our in-person system and we shut our in-person system down because we didn't want to offer a second-rate product. And I guarantee you this, that if companies start who, where it's reasonably feasible start to invest into that technology, we're going to see more companies doing that and less of those transportation pollution costs. Same thing with homeschooling. As homeschooling improves, as it becomes a preferred option, as homeschooling wins in the free market and people start to voluntarily choose it, there won't be the need for that type of transportation either. And we're going to see a reduction in the worst type of emissions. Now, when we talk about, when we talk about carbon, carbon dioxide emissions, I mean, the, primarily when people talk about global warming, they're mostly talking about carbon dioxide emissions. Sometimes they're talking about methane emissions, but we can keep it simple and talk about carbon dioxide. Again, transportation is a lot of that. That's a huge, huge, huge portion of it. Uh, the other portions of that are, are, uh, come from power plants. And here's the thing. Right now we have publicly regulated utilities, which means essentially there was an idea that worked, and now the government said, yeah, do it that way. And that would be kind of like if we were also using Apple II GSs. Yeah, they worked at the time, but it would be a strange thing to use today. And what That's we're doing, the first we're, computer I learned how to use. I apologize to interrupt. I just couldn't stop myself nice, from laughing because nice, you brought that nice. up. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> nice. But, but, I mean, imagine if we had to use those today. It would be bizarre. And that's what we're right. doing. We're just using outdated technology. There are modern nuclear plants. They're a fraction of the size. They have way less radiation. Their, their waste has a much shorter half-life. There's much less of it. Technology has improved. And so the solution to that, in my view, is private ownership and private selling of that energy. Let that energy be sold privately through, and let the companies either rent or use the same transmission lines. You know, it already works for – I mean, it already works for cell phones. I mean, the compete, people say, well, what about competition? Right now, those of you guys who are using um, Google Fi and all that kind of stuff, 
Google is just renting lines, uh, sorry, renting satellite space from AT&T and T-Mobile. Yeah, they're competitors, but guess what? In the free market, you're not enemies just because you're competitors. And so companies can work this out. There's already a model of working out renting other people's space. And you, if you've either worked in a business or own a business, you've also done that. If you have an office, you're renting space from a building company. They're not, they're not like, yeah, it's my building, only my business can run. They're like, yeah, you want this resource, pay us, we'll, we'll, we'll rent it to you. So a lot of that, uh, that can be reduced. A lot of those emissions can come down if we opt for more modern technology rather than we're using 1970s technology most of the time. So let's update and see if that brings it down a lot. And all the models that I've seen, all the information I've seen has suggested that it will make the, the amount of emissions plummet. Telework, homeschool, and modern power plant is going to drop the amount of emissions to the floor. Okay, good answer. Now, um, thank, uh, thankfully, because you, you did such a great job of being very concise and able to get through all of these questions easily, um, you have plenty of time. So if you like, I'd like to give you some bonus questions. Sure, let's do some bonus questions. Love that all idea. Right, so, all right, the war on drugs. Uh, this one's usually pretty easy street for libertarians, I would say, but um, I would like you to go ahead and give your take on it, and that has to do with what, if any, role the government has to do in regulating um, drugs, drug dealers, um, and, and of course, we have to get over the fact, you know, that while mentioning all this, is because inevitably the audience is going to be like, but what about really dangerous drugs like, say, heroin? Sure, sure. So, so let's talk about let's talk about this. You know, as, as unlike many libertarians. I don't use any drugs at all. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I'm completely straight edge. I don't smoke marijuana. I don't do anything. And that's and that's a personal choice. And when anybody asks me if they think if I think they should make the choice, I say the truth. I think yes. I think it's something that's enhanced my life. And I think that everyone that I've known that has made that decision, either from talking to me or just on their own, it seems to have enhanced their lives as well. And so I want to talk to I want to specifically talk to a lot of the people who are very very opposed to drugs. Uh, very and believe that the government should be involved, and I want to paint a picture of what's going on right now. And, and what I'm telling, none of this, what I'm saying right now is going to be exaggerated in any way. It's just these are just true stories that I've heard from people working in the legal system, uh, not from a bunch of you know drug addicts or you know even drug activists. These are just people who are working the legal system and are shocked by what's going on. So often you end up with the following situation: you have somebody who wants to. Uh, Who's, who is who is addicted to a drug and is, wants to come clean. And he's, he's getting clean. He's in the process of getting clean. He wants to get clean. His family wants him to get clean. The, the judges want him to get clean. His neighbors want him to get – everybody agrees that, that he wants – everybody wants this, the goal. Everyone has the same goal. And guess what happens? He has a stressful day. Something happens. He slips up. And to those who want to judge somebody like that harshly, I'm going to ask you this. Have you ever, at any point in your life, because you had a hard day, have you ever eaten some junk food that maybe you shouldn't? Have you ever skipped a workout? Have you ever gone outside without your jacket on because you were feeling annoyed or something? Have you ever, ever let your emotions make you do the thing that wasn't the absolute best for you? Did you ever stay up late, even though you knew that put you in some higher risk of getting sick because you wanted to watch a movie? Did you ever do something like that? And if the answer is no, then, you know, great. One day I hope to be as disciplined as you are. For most of us, the answer is yes. And so what happens? They slip up. They make a mistake. They're under pressure. And, you know, I know a lot of you guys are addicted to Netflix, but 
Heroin is more addictive than Netflix, from what I understand. I haven't tried heroin. I have tried Netflix, but what people say is a lot more addictive. So they make this <laughs> mistake. So then the question is, what happens next? And this is the part. This is the part, Neil. That that is so. This is the tragic part. They'll they're they're they, you know they they've broken the law. They're they're sentenced, and the judges, the judges who are sentencing them, are speaking out against the sentence. And they're saying that what's happening right now is morally wrong. It is barbaric. It is not why I became a judge. If there was any legal way that I could get rid of this sentence, if there was any way for me to do it with my decades of experience, with my legal research, with my skilled legal mind, I would do it. I would stop this because this is wrong, but they can't. That's the current situation. And so the question becomes, you know, what do we do about drugs? Not that. Anything but that. And what should we do? We should recognize that people are human and people are trying to get better. Like, yeah, I know that sometimes, you know, when somebody's like 17, 18 on a stupid dare, they do heroin or they, they do whatever. What, when they're struggling to get better, when they're struggling to improve themselves, it is disgusting to then step in and say, yep, I'm going to lock you up in this government cage. We're going to be beaten and sexually assaulted at near random intervals. That, to me, is not okay. So when I say that on my first day I'm going to pardon all nonviolent drug dealers and sellers and traffickers and everybody, it's not because I think drugs are good. Because also on my first day I'm going to just use the power of the presidential bully pulpit to insult and mock and demean drugs and make it do whatever I can to discourage people, to talk about alternatives, to show other social alternatives. I mean, I'll talk about everything. I've been talking people out of, out of using drugs and drinking alcohol my entire life. I've gotten pretty good at it. But I'm not going to use force because force ends up getting you to do something stupid. And so that's why I talk about pardoning everybody. That's why I talk about ending the war on drugs because the current thing is – I think that if anybody saw it firsthand or honestly even heard about it firsthand – they would have to agree that that isn't right, that if somebody is trying to come clean, that are trying to overcome a thing, that they struggle, they're human, they make a slight mistake, and everyone, including the judge who's sentencing them, says this is wrong, then that's not something that's okay. And I think most people can agree that that's not okay. And from there, it's the question is, is not should the government be involved in drugs, because it shouldn't, but rather what can the rest of us do to encourage people to not get involved in drugs some of that comes from increasing economic opportunities by getting rid of regulations on small businesses. Some of that is just cultural. I mean, some of that is to say openly, yes, it's not the government's responsibility. It's mine as a parent. It's mine as a neighbor. It's mine as a sibling. It's mine as a friend to tell you, yeah, it's stupid. Don't do it. Find something else to do. Or I understand why you're doing it. You're doing it because you want to seem popular and cool in this environment. Here's 12 other things you could do instead. I mean, there are, there are other solutions that are both either pragmatic or moral that are going to work much better than anything involving the war on drugs as it stands today. Okay. Now, um, you know, just a personal anecdote as well. I grew mm -hmm, up in the sure. ghetto, and during the time that I lived there, my next-door neighbor became a crack dealer. And mm -hmm. I have to tell you that despite the fact this was largely due – well, a lot of my childhood was during the, you know, just say no <laughs> – you know, and the, the, the egg in the frying pan and yeah, this yeah, is your brain you, on man. drugs. Nothing ever motivated me to not ever want to use drugs more than being around people who are addicted to drugs. Yeah. Like that was that was enough. I, I think I remember because I moved from the country to the ghetto because we used to be farmers when I was younger. Mm -hmm. And then we we went bankrupt because it was very difficult to be a farmer at that time period. 
Right. And uh, anyway, so, you know, I'm at a playground and there's this guy mm-hmm. digging in the gravel at the playground mm-hmm. and he's there for like an hour. And I said, you know, to a kid who was there, I was like, what is he doing? He's like, oh, he dropped his crack rock in the gravel and he can't find it. And I was like, oh, great. You know, and that was like mm-hmm. my first encounter. I, I, I was probably only about 10 years old. My first encounter with a drug addict. You know, and that's why I, you know, my own approach to trying to make sure that, you know, my kids didn't use drugs was something along the lines of just exposing them to that. Um, and anybody who's interested in this topic, you can look back on my um, archives and I interviewed the maker of uh, The Last Great White Hope, America's War on Drugs. And we discussed like decriminalization and how successful it has been in other countries. And when you said mock them, I think that's an interesting point too, because in that documentary, it took him forever in Amsterdam, which is a decriminalized country to find anybody who even used crack and the, mm-hmm. everybody around him more or less kind of treated him with the same semblance of somebody that perhaps thought that sniffing bleach was a good idea. Um, so I, th- I do think that there's, there's a lot to be said for what you said there. So I like, I like your approach. So there's so many behaviors that are legal that you still just wouldn't do because they're just bizarre or self-destructive or just straight stupid. I mean, I don't, I don't know of any specific law that stops you from smacking yourself in the head with a wrench, but you know, you still don't want to do it. And, and so there, there's a lot more. You know, it, self-interest is powerful. I mean, you know, I've spoken to a lot of people, and, and you know, especially to a lot of young men about, you know, why, you know, who, who've been addicted to drugs. And I ask them the question frankly and say, you know, why did you get addicted to drugs? Why did you start? I mean, you, you knew the risk. And 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 it's time and time again I hear the same you know variation of the same answer, which is people say I never just did drugs like just to do them. At least not in, in the early phase. And, you know, later on things change. But I never at the early phase I didn't just do them like just to do them. I did it because I was trying to impress a girl. I was trying to impress somebody an older you know somebody's older. I was trying to you know look cool or look tough. I was trying to be cool. That's why I did it. It's not that I, it's not just I just did it just to do it. And so a lot of this comes from you know right now. In, in most schools, whether it's public or private, the type of social skills that are built are basically the one skill of social conformity, which while it's a skill, is not like the best of all skills. And so a lot of this comes down to, to, uh, to skill building. You know, how do you, you know, I've never met somebody that was, you know, very aggressively extroverted and socially dominant who then also told me the story about how they were pressured into doing, into doing drugs. You know, building those type, that type of independent strength, those in social, social skills of independence, those are things that will shield people from those bad decisions far more than making something outlawed and therefore, you know, kind of more cool to do in the first place. Okay. So now this is actually a pretty decent segue, although we've talked a little bit about it already, but that brings us to another bonus question of criminal justice reform. And being an anarchist, I guess this is an interesting question for you. Um, and it, but we don't, once again, we have to kind of like segue it into the, the unusual circumstance of an anarchist being in a high position of government power as the president. Uh, how would you uh, be in a, how would you approach criminal justice reform? And, and could you speak on what you think is wrong with the criminal justice system as it stands? Sure. So, so I've, I've spoken on the on the small issues, right? You know, you get a T-shirt that's the wrong size. You drop down, pick from a drop down on Amazon uh, that why you didn't like the shirt, and you just say it's the wrong size, and then that's that's it. It's like this. It's this thing that's that's so 
quick and so painless that it doesn't even occur to you that you just went through a court trial, a dispute resolution. It was decided in your favor. You now won the case. It's so fast that that you can't even that you can't even appreciate how fast it was. You know, it, in in uh, in business, people often talk about the locksmith problem, which is that imagine you have a locksmith. You you hire a locksmith to help get you into your house. You lock yourself out. A locksmith comes in and it takes you know he fiddles with it. It takes him an hour, and he you know he charges you a hundred bucks and you give him the hundred bucks and you happily give him a tip. And and that's you know that's like a positive experience to you, right? You feel victorious. There's a struggle. You you're victorious. Twenty years pass. You hire you. Same thing happens. You hire a locksmith without you realizing it's the same locksmith, but he's now better at his job. And so he comes in 35 seconds. He opens the door. He charges you 100 bucks. And now you're mad. You give him the 100 bucks. You don't give him any tip. And all that changed was that he's better at his job now. He did it better. He didn't even make you wait out for an hour, but you're you feel resentful now. The same thing happens in private sector dispute resolution. It's it is Amazon dispute resolution is government dispute resolution with decades of experience now. They're so good at it. It's so painless that you don't even bother to think that like, oh yeah, I just want a court case. Isn't this great? Isn't wonderful? You're just like, yeah, okay. Uh, I guess, oh, oh no, now I have to send it back to be victorious. I have to send back this thing. That'll be slightly annoying. I mean, that's, those are the thoughts that you have. And so the extent to which the private sector has already gotten to that second locksmith stage, the advanced locksmith, the one that does it quickly and painlessly so you don't appreciate it enough, that's what's happening. To me, that's actually a good problem. Now, I've talked about the easy situation. I want to talk about the hard stuff now. Uh, I I alluded to the way that government had mismanaged things like sexual assault. And I want to talk about ways in which the private sector has actually been able to address that better. So there are many different standards of evidence. In the, US, in the U.S. court system, it's, beyond, it's reasonable doubt, as in if there's – to be convicted, you must be convicted beyond any reasonable doubt. Other systems use preponderance of evidence, which means where, where, which side seems to have more evidence on it. So today, in order to protect people who go to various events where, where you know, there, there are single events or dancing events or you know, events for kids or, or anything where there might be a, a sort of a risk, anything that's kind of, kind of a, an attractive ground for, for predators – a lot of places have just simply just changed their internal standards. They're private companies, and so they don't use reasonable doubt. Some just use any accusation at all. Some use preponderance of evidence. And so different places are standing both different. They're, they're balancing out safety and freedom in different ways. And they're saying that if you want to come to this event, you have to be somebody where no one has ever, ever said anything bad about you ever. Or you were going to use this other type of standard. And so – when it comes to sexual assault, government has basically a 0% success rate. 99% of the time it's not reported. When it is reported, 99% of the time nothing's done about it. When something is done about it, you have rape kits that are sitting in evidence lockers for, lockers for decades. So it, it is 0% effective right now. The Me Too movement has shown that it is 0% effective. It works none of the time. It is no chance of ever working. But – the private sector is experimenting with ways. And I don't say I agree with every single thing happening. I think some of it's bizarre, and I think some of it's stupid, and I think some of it's going to be unsuccessful. But that's good because every business is now a laboratory of innovation of how do we actually solve this problem? How do we actually keep people safe? How do we actually get rid of this epidemic, this cancer on America? How do we make it stop? And so that's when I, when I say that the private sector can do it better, even in criminal justice, 
I mean especially in criminal justice, especially in areas where the state has so completely failed to do anything at all of any meaning. So both in the small areas of, of you know, I got the wrong T-shirt, to the big areas of sexual assault, it's the private sector that is showing that this can be done better. Okay. Um. Well, man, you just trailblazed through everything. We got one left. That would be awesome. immigration. <laughs> Let's talk about immigration. So, 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 Neil, I mean, I imagine that if 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 the United States government passed a law that said we can no longer buy computers or high technology from other countries, most businesses in America would be up in arms. Most people would say that doesn't sound like a smart law. That seems like we're going to tank our economy. And as a point of actual fact, countries that have not banned computers, I don't know any country that's done that, but that have, that have heavily taxed computers, countries like Brazil and Argentina, in doing that, they have demolished their own economies. Uh, an Argentine economy or a Brazilian economy using computers from 10 years ago they're not going to be able to compete against an, an American com- company that's using computers from you know 10 days ago. The better your computers are, if you're in an industry that depends on computers, which is most industries, it's going to make things better for you. And I would say that computers are among the most necessary things for success of a company, uh, for one that depends on computers anyway, with one exception, which is highly skilled labor. The only thing that is more valuable to the modern economy than computers is skilled labor. And yet today, the government is keeping skilled labor out. Uh, They have radically limited the amount of skilled workers that can come into the United States. They have missed, so so, um, I don't know if you know this, Neil, but most places, uh, sorry, so the original intention for the H-1B visas was that there'd be a certain number of visas for skilled workers. But what they've started doing now is counting their family members against the cap. So in addition to the number being bizarrely low anyway, they're now saying that if you're a family of four, that's now four. They're counting as like basically four skilled workers, which is you know not, not really great mathematics. So the result is we have a shortage of skilled workers, and the re- predictable effect of that is, is that companies fail. I mean, if you take the skilled workers out of a company, if you take the most highly skilled innovators out of a company, the company's going to fail. It's going to get shipped overseas. You know, it's, people wonder why, why so much is getting shipped overseas. Manufacturing, computer programming, now radiology. They're like wondering, why is this happening? You have two choices. Either you can let the computer programmers come to America and do their computer programming here and then go to American restaurants and American grocery stores and use American products and buy American clothes, or you can have the computer programmers stay there, the job gets shipped over there, and then they go to grocery stores and restaurants and whatever in their own home country. That's the choice. And today the government is making us make the wrong of those two choices, and we're shipping everything overseas. The way to turn that around is by letting skilled workers come here. I say let's brain drain the whole country, I'm the whole world. Let's have all the best and brightest and hardest working and most innovative and most entrepreneurial people in the whole world. Have them all come to America. Have them all come here and set up great businesses and create jobs and, and frequent other companies. Let's have them do that. So my first, the first phase of immigration is I'm going to get rid of the H1 cap entirely. My second phase, open borders, no welfare, which means that if you're coming here, you don't have a college degree, 
but you have grit and ambition and drive and you're not here to try to get any welfare, then by all means, come in here, set up the next IKEA over here. Let's make sure that every business, every big business that starts up anywhere starts up here. Let's make this the most business-friendly, the most entrepreneur-friendly, the most immigrant-friendly country in the whole world, but at the same time the most welfare-unfriendly country in the whole world so that we have everyone who wants to create coming here and nowhere else. Okay. So now we get to the point in the broadcast where you've more or less have covered all of these points. Um, something that it did occur to me that uh, I have asked some of the other candidates, although mm-hmm. as far none of them have taken me up on this, but it is that when I run the debates, provided that um, you know you participate, it is my intention to try to not, I mean, I'm not going to try to entirely eliminate personal attack, but I will be penalizing people's time if they keep doing it. But mm-hmm. what I do want is that if you do have anything to say about any of the other candidates or their perspectives or the party in general as to how it's conducting itself, um, now would be the time. Uh, is there anything that bothers you about any of the other candidates yeah, in the race? Of course, of course. Um, I, I've, been, I've been very open about where I stand on different candidates. For example, I've people have asked who you know who would you support? Who's your second choice basically after yourself? I've told everyone Adam Kokesh is my second choice. He's a he's an amazing leader in the libertarian movement. He's been an icon of the movement for decades. You know he's and and it's. It's something that's so interesting because I've, you know, I've spoken to people in various other things, you know, related to education, entrepreneurship, and I've talked to people just, just, just about whatever, right? Not even about libertarianism. And people have brought up that they've, you know, they heard this amazing guy talk, this guy Adam Kokesh, and he was talking about this, this stuff. He was talking about, you know, maybe Bitcoin, or he was talking about, you know, uh, not like military non-intervention. He was talking about something else. So, so, so I, so, so it's not that I oppose all the other candidates. I have a lot of respect for a lot of them. I have a lot of respect for Dan Berman, the taxationist theft guy. I mean, I've learned more from him during this campaign than I have from anybody else in the campaign, including Adam. Now, granted, I might have learned everything I was going to from Adam before, but the point is, I've learned, and I've still learned from from Adam during the campaign. But I've learned a lot from Dan. I mean, he's a deep thinker. So it's not that I that I disagree with every single candidate, but I will tell you this. A real candidate is going to have to be a leader, not a follower. A real candidate that actually has a chance of you know, either pushing, changing culture or winning is going to be somebody that is not responding to the out-there culture, but rather shaping culture. And so today we have a lot of candidates who are willing to at least try to do that. But one of the candidates who I believe is the worst possible choice, who is not trying to do that at all, this is somebody who voted for the Patriot Act. This is somebody who voted against a tax cut in order to have more welfare in, in the state in the form of early childhood education. This is somebody uh, – wait, when I say voted for the Patriot Act, just to clarify, voted for the Patriot Act twice. This is somebody who has uh, voted against, to reinstate, to re- increase a capital gains tax to dump more money into the overbloated, overpriced military that right now is doing everything except for anything useful. And that's Lincoln Chafee. Now, he is the most famous candidate right now. I'm not going to argue that one bit. But an echo of statist ideology is not what's going to bring us anywhere. And if we as a party want to actually make a difference, to actually move forward, we need to stand on, on our principles and fight for our ideals, not find ways to bend and morph and contort our ideals into status culture. I've said many times that this culture, American culture, has produced this government. 
And if we knock down this government today, this culture will recreate it tomorrow. Our candidate needs to be willing to fight that cultural war. I am, I know Adam is, I know many of the other candidates are, but I don't believe that Lincoln Chafee is in any way a reasonable choice. Listen, we've made the same choice in 2008, in 2012, in 2016. We went with the candidates who weren't going to make us fight the cultural war, who would let us say, this is our candidate, look, he's nice, now I'm going to hang out. I'm not that candidate. I'm going to make your social life hard because people are going to ask you if you believe that homeschooling is right and public schooling is wrong. They're going to ask you personally if you believe that enlisting in the, in the military when it has such a horrific purpose is morally wrong. They're going to ask you this, and your life is going to be hard. That's what happens when you're actually fighting a cultural war. Your life gets hard, and that's why there are candidates that I support and there are candidates that I absolutely oppose. Okay. Um, now, I guess uh, since we still have, let's see here. Yeah, you have 45 minutes. What are your right. thoughts, Donald Trump? Uh, so, sorry, sorry. Say that, say, say that one more time, Neil. That cut out for a uh, second. Yeah. What are your thoughts on Donald Trump? So Donald is one of those people who does the exact opposite of what people want our candidates to do, and we can see a success. What people want our candidates to do is be these very, like, sort of meek, bow-tie-wearing, eccentric people who in no way are going to challenge anything, who in no way are going to upset anyone, who are going to just let us keep on, you know, being libertarian without having to do any libertarianism. And so Donald Trump has been the opposite. His policies are not particularly different from anybody else. It's not different from Obama's policies in any meaningful way. They're not different from Bush's policies. They're not really different from Clinton's policies. They're about the same. But his style is different. And what has he done? He's made it socially hard to be a Republican in a lot of areas. You know, people who are Republican are, one, hiding that fact, and two, cheering him on because they love it. Now, I don't believe that if he had reversed it, if he had become more Republican at the policy level, but sort of more meek at the personality level, that that would have helped the Republican Party at all. I don't think that a Jeb Bush type would have done any better. I think that his, that that method worked. So in terms of, of what I've learned from him as a candidate, I do think that, yeah, picking the fights is good. You know, triggering the media is good. You know, getting people upset about things and getting their attention focused on the issues you want them to focus on, that's good. And that's, that, that's something they did very powerfully. But a president needs to be more than just a candidate. A president needs to be a leader, and especially during a time when there is an actual crisis going on. We need a president that can, be, that can handle a crisis much better than what Trump is doing right now. I've shown, hopefully, through by example, how I am handling this crisis and how I've encouraged other people to handle this crisis and what I would do if I was president. And I'll tell you this, I wouldn't for a second, you know, and, and it could just be that Trump, Trump doesn't have very much interest in foreign policy or foreign cultures. He's certainly given that impression to everybody, whether that's natural or that's true, I have no idea. But I am not in the same position. I've studied many other cultures. I've lived in, uh, I've traveled to many other countries. I've lived in many different places. I've learned about culture, and I've learned to know what to look for. One of the reasons that Trump was caught flat-footed on this is that he was listening to nonsense data. He was believing China's data because, for some reason, he hadn't studied recent Chinese history, and by, by which I mostly mean current events. 
and he believed India's data, which was just as bad. China's data has suggested that coronavirus basically increases to a certain point and then just kind of like goes on vacation. Then it jumps across the, an ocean to a different country, and then it comes back or, or whatever nonsense they're trying to believe. Now, remember, China has a history of lying, especially when its public face is at risk. Uh, with their Olympic team, they've had people on their Olympic team that are clearly underage to give them an advantage. And in, in women's gymnastics, uh, having a l- little bit more of a higher percentage of cartilage in your bones can give you some advantage. So they've had people on their Olympic team, the highest level of scrutiny, that are clearly underage. And they've been called out for it and done nothing about it. China has lied to the world many, many times. And the idea that they weren't doing this time exactly what they would do and have always done, to me, is is just showing a level of naivete that is inappropriate for a president. A president cannot be gullible to that level. Any leader, a business leader can't be gullible to that level. The owner of a small gas station should not be gullible to that level. So that's one country that he's believed bizarrely. The other country that he's believed, again, comes from uh, is India, uh, which comes from, again, a lack of understanding of what's going on over there. India has such a tiny number of coronavirus cases, despite having no basic sanitation and barely breathable air. The reason for that, that India's rate is so low, is the way their medical system is structured. In India, everything you pay is paid out of pocket. And what that means is that no one in the country has ever or almost ever paid for an autopsy. You just wouldn't pay for that out of pocket. If you have to actually pay for an autopsy, yeah, you, people, they don't bother. And so because of that, Deaths are being recorded as just old age or just general sickness, and we're getting a very false picture of what's actually happening. In, in, in India, it might just be obliviousness. In China, I believe it's actively hiding, but neither case is great. So, so in that situation, you need somebody who is actually understands just the basic rudiments of, of other cultures. Now, I'm, not, I'm not like a deep expert on China, but I don't think you need to be an expert on a country to understand how you know, logistic growth works for viral sp- spreading. I don't think you need to be an expert on a country to know that if they lied about something as big as their Olympic team, they're probably lying about this too. If you look at their abhorrent behavior in Tiananmen Square when the entire world's news was watching, that's who we're dealing with, and they are lying about this. So in a tactical situation, I do believe that there are situations where leaders need to think tactically. You can't always think in, in, in a rosy situation. In a tactical situation, you need somebody that can actually weigh risk quickly, understand different variables quickly, multitask quickly. And so in that case, I don't believe that Trump, he's a great candidate. He is not up to this. He has shown that he is not up to this. What he's saying now, even after that, that this is going to be cured by Easter or whatever, is irresponsible. And here's why, Neil, here's why it's irresponsible. It's not just irresponsible because it's wrong. It's because it's encouraging people to not make the changes they needed to. If he told the truth, and the truth is it's going to last for 12 to 18 months, then people say, okay, I need to get a different job. Okay, I need to apply for the companies that are hiring, like Amazon and presumably every toilet paper manufacturer in the country. I need to go to those places. The place that I'm working for right now might not be there. I need, I'm a waiter right now, but maybe I should think about being a delivery driver because the demand for waiters is low and for delivery drivers is high. I need to change. If you tell people the truth, they can adjust to that. But if you lie to people and say it's going to be over in three weeks, then they'll say, yeah, I don't really need to get a new – it's just three weeks. What's the big deal? And if it's three weeks, three weeks, three weeks, three weeks, and people never adapt – then we're going to see an economic depression because if 35% of, our, our, of the economy, if the 35% of the able-bodied workers are simply not working because they think it's going to be two more weeks before their old job is back, 
that con- that the country cannot survive economically. That's how you create a depression. So we need people to adapt fast. And I would tell the truth. Yeah, this is terrible. This, we don't want this thing, but it's here. And we need to adapt, and we need to adapt right now because it's not going away anytime soon. Joe Biden. He, I mean, it's, to me, it's just a non-entity. I mean, he's, he's shown neither leadership nor charisma in any way that I can tell. Uh, the only leadership that I've found just researching him from the past is that he encouraged civil asset forfeiture, which is today on the left, the right, libertarians, greens. Everyone seems to agree is the worst thing ever. That's you know taking somebody's property without a trial. That, 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 as far as I know, is all he's ever shown any leadership on at all. And it was terrible leadership. It was short-sighted and stupid. So, you know, if you can't figure out that if if you create an incentive for people to steal and let them get away with it, that they're going to steal and get away with it. If if you don't have that basic understanding of of social motivation, of individual motivation, of criminal justice, if you're not operating at that very basic understanding, then you can't. Then you, you don't. You don't. You don't. You shouldn't be the leader of anything because your decision making is going to be bad. And. While I do believe that a president should be basically a partner chief and no more, I also believe that the president can occasionally at least speak on a subject and should do so in a way that doesn't actively mislead. If Trump just like shut up about this and let those of us who actually understood the situation tell the truth so that people can adapt and so we can have a strong and adaptable and adapting economy, that would be fine. But he's going out there and he's spreading misinformation. Uh, Biden, as far as you can tell, is not spreading any information at all about this or any other topic. I mean, that, that to me is he's, he's not a strong candidate. He lacks both the charisma and the policy skill and the, the insight and the tactical decision-making to do this. So I would, I would say he, he gets zero stars out of five and Trump gets one star out of five because Trump, for whatever are his flaws, he's a charismatic guy. Well, because we have this goofy situation going on, whereas um, the, the, their primary is um, not finished yet, but mm-hmm kind of close to being finished, but we have no idea what's going to come with the issue of Joe Biden. A lot of people are actually kind of curious if there's something else wrong with him because it seems like his uh, campaign is hiding him. Uh, But, you know, so that inevitably that also means that I have to ask you about Bernie Sanders because of the possibility Mm -hmm. that he could be the nominee as well. What, you know, what, because being in a solid second at this point. Sure. So, so let's, let's, let's take a look. And this is where we need to really look deep into human nature, right? So you have, you have, you know, and we see this, you know, I work with a lot of parents who get frustrated and, and, and you talk, and a lot of people talk very openly, right? And imagine, let's say a kid is struggling with their multiplication tables, right? Now, if you just have aggression and you just hate that kid, your solution to that is you're going to just beat the kid. And many, many parents through many generations of history have done exactly that. That has been their educational method. It's not a good educational method. It's mean-spirited, and it's ineffective. But it does, you know, maybe get some of your latent hostility towards your own children, which I think is a little bit sick anyway, but at least maybe it gets that out there. Now, Bernie Sanders has taken that same principle of addressing, finding a problem that's a legitimate problem. College debt is a problem. It shouldn't be there. And he's not naive, I mean, I think that when it comes to, to, to China and India, I think that Trump is showing a certain level of naivete. I don't get the sense that Bernie Sanders is, is naive about college. I think he knows, just as well as anyone who's thought about this for any you know, length of time, and he seems to have thought about it a lot, that 
there are two ways to address the situation. One is to make the prices go down by cutting off aid, and the other is to make those rich bastards pay. And it's the second one that has gotten people excited. It's the second one that that his fans seem to be supporting. And I don't I don't it's not that I don't understand where the hostility comes from, right? Because those are people who have been lied to. You have people who are told that, yeah, if you go to college, major in anything you want, you're going to get this amazing job and follow your dreams and be a millionaire and all that, right? So they listened. They believed. These are people who believed. And they went there and they majored in, you know, they said they could major in anything. So they majored in whatever they found most interesting at the time. They got out and all of a sudden they they weren't given that. that The thing that they were told was going to happen, they were going to make an extra million dollars or whatever, it didn't happen. And so they're angry. And when you're angry, you want to take it out on somebody. I understand the impulse. There are times when I'm angry, and there's times when I want to take it on, out on somebody. There are times when I have taken it out on somebody, but I certainly don't make that plan A. I try to avoid doing that at all costs because it's wrong, and it's ineffective, and it's childish, and it's infantile. So this is a situation where I see a huge sociological movement of people taking, trying to take their frustrations out, which is I got economically screwed over, so I want you to get economically screwed over. It's an understandable impulse, but it's not problem-solving. The real solution here is to say, what can solve this problem? And we know what can solve it. Cut all aid. Cut all aid to colleges. Force them to, go, force them to lower prices or go out of business. They're going to find ways to lower costs. At the same time, there's information. Make sure that people understand that even the State Department doesn't believe in college degrees. That's why they have the Foreign Service Officer Test. The financial sector, when there's billions of dollars at stake, they don't trust college degrees. They have their own test. Encourage people to look at those alternatives. Because somebody might say, well, well, what matters more, passing one actuarial exam or a Harvard degree in math? I have no idea. But I will tell you this, a degree in social justice studies at a small and not very prestigious college is going to carry much less weight than one actuarial exam or the Foreign Service Officer Test or many other things. So don't get stuck in that way and don't let jealousy and mean-spiritedness guide policy. So with with, with Bernie Sanders, I mean, to me, he's more dangerous. He's more dangerous than Biden because he is manipulating people, creating a strong movement of people who are being manipulated, but he's appealing to their worst intentions. I mean, that's a demagogue. He's appealing to their anger, to their frustration. He's basically creating a scapegoat for them. He's doing all the, the worst things that the worst demagogues in history have done. And so I would be very worried if he becomes a nominee. Because if he becomes a nominee, he could very well go all the way. I mean, the demagogues, for whatever their flaws, tend to be good campaigners, and he is a good campaigner, and he's absolutely a cleverly manipulative demagogue. Okay, well, that brings us – we have 30 minutes left, so I want to offer you the opportunity to appeal to the voter. Why should – I mean, in general, I would say – the majority of the people who are probably going to be attracted to what you have said over the course of this broadcast would likely be Republicans. Um, why should a Republican vote for you rather than Donald Trump in this election? Sure. I want to, I want to speak, if, if you don't mind, to all the different groups. I want to speak to, to Republicans. I can certainly ahead. speak to Republicans first. But for Republicans, listen, Donald Trump has passed gun laws. A bump stock ban is a gun law. He has raised government spending, which is going to raise taxes directly or indirectly. You don't have to just raise your taxes to raise to reduce your purchasing power. If everything you buy, the price goes up because he's just taxing the producers of the goods, 
it's still indirectly taxing you. I mean, it's still affecting you in the same way. You're still paying the taxes. You're just paying that other company's taxes rather than, than directly. So I am not here to be a fake Republican or Republican light or anything like that. I am talking about cutting taxes to zero. I'm talking about cutting gun laws to zero. I oppose all gun laws of any kind. Many Republicans worry about the social issues, and I totally get that. And when it comes to the actual social issues, a lot of those areas you and I agree. I probably like drugs a lot less than you do. I have zero tolerance for drugs in my own house. Uh, you know, All my friends know that drugs are simply not welcome in my home ever at all under any circumstances, no matter what. Many of them use drugs. They just do, them, do it somewhere else. So my opposition to drugs is absolute. But I want to end drug use, not just make some prisons rich while pretending to do it. There's a difference between getting a job done and pretending to get it done while funneling tax money to your friends. So I'm going to get the job done. And the specific jobs I'm going to get done is this. First, I'm going to reduce drug use. Am I going to eliminate it? No. No one can do that. But I can reduce it a lot more than what's happening right now. I'm going to reduce your taxes to nothing. And that's not going to happen by dumping your taxes on somebody else. That's going to be done by or by having somebody else pay it and then you pay it indirectly. That's going to happen by having the government do less. So a lot of what the government does now, I'm going to stop it. Driving up the price of college, I'm going to stop it. Drug war, stop it. Getting involved in foreign civil wars, I'm going to stop it. Now, in, in, in a lot of Republican circles, I know that you have been, in my view, well, let's just call it, call it tricked, which is this, this litmus test for being a good Catholic or a good Christian or a good Protestant is that you have to support Israel. Uh, that is bizarre theology. I'm not saying I'm not saying this to say anything against the hardworking Jewish men and women in America or even the hardworking Jewish men and women in Israel. It's not about that. This is about think it through for a second. If you have to support a Jewish government in Israel to be a good Christian, that doesn't make any sense, and it's a manipulation tactic that is being used against you. What should we actually do about Israel? Get out of it. Just get out of it completely and let people there handle it themselves. We don't need to be involved in everybody else's business. Listen, none of us like nosy neighbors. None of us like people that get involved in our lives without any good reason. And other countries don't want us involved over there without good reason either. So we have this amazing opportunity right now to stop doing it. We can stop being involved in other countries' civil wars. There is at this moment in time no country that can actually pose an existential threat to America we have allies to the north and south, oceans to the east and west, and a nuclear arsenal that can destroy the world many times over. We're safe. So I'm going to get us out of NATO first. And you might say, well, that's scary. NATO had a goal. The goal of NATO was to win the Cold War. Guess what? It did it. Great. Mission accomplished. Bring it home. End it. The war in Iraq and Afghanistan, there was a goal. It was a strange goal. It was a militarily dubious goal. The goal was essentially, as far as I could tell, to kill one guy, and a large infantry deployment to do that is not, as your commander-in-chief, something that I'm ever going to do. I will never send you know, hundreds of thousands of people and trillions of dollars to kill one guy. That's insane. But it had a goal, and it achieved the goal. The goal, despite how strange that strategy was, 
It ended up working because for the, the men and women in the American Armed Forces, they're Americans, they're innovative, they're creative, they're clever. And even if you put them in a stupid situation, they'll still somehow get it done. It was still a stupid situation, but it worked. Let's bring them home. Our missions have been accomplished. We won World War II, so we can bring our troops out of Germany now. We can bring our troops out of Japan. In any war game simulation between North and South Korea, South Korea demolishes North Korea in about 15 or 20 minutes. We can bring our troops home from the DMZ as well. We can bring everybody home, give people early honorable discharges if they need it, if they've already gotten that point, let people go, let them rejoin the productive private sector. And it's not about being mean or anything to soldiers. Trust me on this. If you give people in the Army today the option of an early honorable discharge, you'll see a line that forms up about as fast as you've ever seen any line form up in your entire life. <laughs> and. And you know what I'm talking about. I mean, you've 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 talked to people in, in, in the military, I'm sure, on on your show and, and and going around. And you know that a lot of people in the military they sign up for one thing, they want to do something good. They saw that it wasn't really that good, and now they want to get out, but they don't want to go to jail for it. So sure. they're 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 people who are they're ready to get out. And here's the thing that those are people. Now I'm going to talk to the business owners for a moment. You have literally over a million people, about 2 million people who are willing to work, as far as I can tell, about 20 hours a day for $19,000 a year. Those are hardworking people. I'm pretty sure we can find something better to do from at home. And I'm pretty sure that, that many businesses who are tired of, you know, who are complaining about, you know, the, the proverbial millennial who can't show up on time and can't show up not high, I'm sure that you wouldn't mind a little bit of military discipline, a little bit of military hard work coming to help you out. And that's what I'm talking about here. I'm not talking about hurting anybody or damaging the economy. I'm talking about putting people to work instead of putting people to creating enemies. And so a lot of the areas that, that you know, people have said that we need to be everywhere all the time. No, we don't. It, it's easy to prey on fear, but I want to ask you, just look at this objectively. Just objectively. Is there any country that can actually threaten America? A military of another country? not China. Yeah, China's a bigger infantry than we do because it's the entire population. They're not trained. I mean, I've spoken to people that went through the Chinese military training that everybody has to go to. It's a joke. They're not ready. We could destroy them if it ever came to that, but it's not going to come to that. You know, we can make trade, create friends through trade rather than create, make enemies through war. And that's how we become safer. I want us to be as safe as much as you do. And so that's why I want to change our foreign policy to one of defense rather than one of enemy creation. And, Neil, do you think there are other questions that Republicans would have about the libertarian position, or at least about my extreme libertarian position, about any of these issues? Well, I think we covered a lot of them. That's why I kind of have a general platform of like questions that I generally would think would appeal to both liberal-minded, left-leaning, and right-leaning um, with the anticipation that inevitably, you know, if you do get the nomination, you're going to have to face, you know, general election questions as well. Absolutely. But when we're talking about third party, um, there's so many like mismatches, or I don't want to say mismatches, like mishmashes, I guess would be the way I would put it, you know, because the libertarians have, you know, some things in common, with, like I would say mostly with the Republicans, but not all, you know, there's a lot of issues that libertarians are not Republican at all about. Like most Republicans are pro-life. Most libertarians I know are not, you know, um, it's things like that. Um, sure. You know, I, I think that uh, in general, um, one of the biggest things, at least, that occurred to me, you know, and I and I normally do talk a lot more on my show. I might add, I'm just letting you talk because the, these these episodes are about you guys, the candidates in particular. And I, I think that 
pundits who spent too much time talking need to shut the hell up when, you know, there's something else going on. But um, for me, it was that, first of all, was just that the, I, I used to work, literally got paid to analyze campaigns and to analyze candidates and analyze their strategies. And I could tell early in 2016, like I could just my finger on the pulse, so to speak, people are done with plastic candidates. And by plastic, mm-hmm. I mean the same typical corporate, you know, uh, refined, you know, clean shaven, you know, right. That's, that's over. And that was mm-hmm. evident to me immediately. And that's, so for the same reason that Trump won is also the same reason why Bernie is popular. And it's the same reason why if they continue to put those kinds of candidates out, you know, I mean, unless for some reason, um, you know, like I don't know who the Republicans will go for next. I'm assuming that it'll probably be Pence um, mm-hmm. if, you know, Trump wins the reelection, you know, but I don't I don't actually think that will necessarily work. Um, I think that but in general, um, people are just done with that. I mean, South Park always does an excellent job of through parody telling the truth. And sure. one of the things that went through was that, you know, the, the parody on the Trump election was that, the, you know, they did the reaction of the voters. He just talks like a normal person. And he, you know, it's like, wow, I can relate to him, you know. And, and the funny thing is, is at the same time, you know, the guy finally tries to get out and says, look, I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, and nothing mm-hmm. he does can make him unpopular. I was like, my God, this is a perfect reflection of exactly what's going on. And, and you didn't really see it until this coronavirus thing happened, because I think that was what really exposed him that, the analogy I typically use, like if I had computer animation skills, what I would want to do would make like a wizard of Oz, you know, Mm -hmm. parody with like, you know, the, the Trump character with the little man behind the curtain, because that's exactly what it is to me. I also, the funny thing is, is despite being left leaning, I don't believe a lot of the crazy things that are said about him. I think that there's a, there's another character that's created that the left doesn't seem to grasp because Um, My kids are involved in the sport of wrestling. And for whatever reason, there are a lot of conservatives in the sport of wrestling. So I have all of these people on my Facebook feed that are incredibly conservative. And I know for sure they're not all racist. They're Mm -hmm. not all, you know, um, in fact, I wouldn't even say the majority of them are. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of things that that he spoke to to them, but, but just came down to being genuine. And that's why one of the reasons why I think the third parties need to make a serious hit this year is because there are going to be disenfranchised voters. I think it's difficult for you to reach Trump supporters who are religious about it. Um, Mm -hmm. But I do think that there are Republicans that feel like they've been left behind. And that's why there were even some people who tried to run against him. I mean, it was pathetic. Like if you can still look for it, if you look at the, uh, the primaries, you know, there's, there was like two other guys that were trying to be the Republican nominee. And of course they're just getting smashed, you know? Um, And one of the things that Andrew Yang said that I felt was very poignant on the debate stage is like, look, you guys need to stop blaming Trump for all of our problems. He's not the problem. He's the reaction, you know? And mm-hmm. um, I think he was absolutely right. You know, that's like saying, well, we'll just take this, this um, aspirin to get rid of this headache, you know, but, but you have a brain tumor, you know, it, it's, <laughs> he's the headache. He, he's not the tumor. Um, and on the left, it's a similar situation. I, I think that, um, you know, it, it wouldn't have to be a highly progressive candidate, but they need they need more genuine people. Um, I, I think that another reason why I wanted to do this series is that I look back to um, 
I, you know, now in contrast, that's the other thing. I have so much trouble talking to the, the kids now that are getting involved in politics who don't remember because they weren't around for it. But like 2008, you know, candidates mm-hmm. who talk like Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders would have been gone. They, they wouldn't even yeah. have been in the second debate. They, they would yeah. have been gone immediately. And I remember distinctly like Congressman Ron Paul, like they think they're getting cheated out of Bates because Tulsi Gabbard didn't get into debates, you know, even though she only managed to pull like two delegates. I was like, Ron Paul actually pulled higher than Rudy Giuliani everywhere, but they kept mm-hmm. trying to stick Rudy Giuliani in the debates and keep Ron Paul out. You yeah. know, that's, that's another aspect of it is that when I point out what's going on with Bernie Sanders or the, the progressive candidates that aren't being treated very well right now, they go, you know, my Republicans friends will be like, well, that's just the corruption of the GOP. And I'm like, uh, no, I got 2008 wants to have a word with you, <laughs> you know, and I also just point out that the establishment didn't even really want Trump either. Um, yeah. At the end of the day, the biggest reason why Trump won is as far as on their end was that he threatened to run third party. If they did the same things to him that Bernie was doing, you know, that they're doing to Bernie right now, he would have run third party. And you and I both know that the Libertarian Party would have just fallen all over themselves to get that guy on their ticket. And he had his own money, you know, so they couldn't just get rid of him. So you have a combination of a guy who's a maverick. He's in a circumstance where everybody is really unhappy. He has Mm -hmm. all the same money that Ross Perot has, which is the only reason Ross Perot got as far as he did. You know, so they had one, they had two choices, lose to Hillary or deal with it. And they decided to deal with it. On the other side of the situation, the Democrats seem content to go ahead and lose to Trump rather than, you know, and then just try to pick somebody in four years when he's out of the way. Because the people who are in the establishment, and this is another point that I tend to bring up to the voters, is that there is an establishment, and I always put it in quotes, that is like the party underneath the parties. You know, and, and people ask me what I mean by that. I'm like, well, here's what I mean. So you have George Bush and the Clintons. And then they argue and violently nasty attack each other. And then you see pictures of them playing golf together. You know, those same people. And that's something that Peter Joseph said in one of his films was that, you know, he made the Zeitgeist films, was he pointed out that he thinks that essentially what's going on is that these people are actually kind of more or less all on the same team with a similar worldview when it really matters. And that they're just competing for the manager position in the company that they both work for. Like, that's the analogy that he would put. You know, yeah, they and, still and, work for the same team. And, and one of the things that you see is that the specific team that they work for is, as far as I can begin to see, is the military-industrial complex. And any candidate on any, of any party that in any way threatens that, that says they're going to bring the troops home or that they, we shouldn't be doing all that, uh, especially for somebody that has the credibility like Tulsi because she's a veteran, anyone who does that, someone like Ron Paul uh, because he opposed military in- intervention – Anyone who does that, who goes against that sacred thing that says, yeah, we don't need to have a world police, that's who they get, who they shut down fast. And so I think you're right. They do work for the same company. That's the company. It's not our company. It's not, it doesn't benefit us. It just benefits the makers of weapons and other equipment for the military. So I do agree that that, yeah, the military industrial complex is by far the most powerful um, lobby in all of this situation. You know, it's the big club and you ain't in it. And I, I do think it goes beyond just that. I mean, companies like Monsanto, for example, they have sure. an enormous amount of power, um, you know, but I think that, you know, one of the other things that I tend to bring up to voters, and this actually comes from my time with Senator Gravel, because he was researching the Constitution very heavily because he wanted to see a constitutional amendment for 
direct dem- democratic referendums, the, similar sure. to the way they do it in Switzerland. Um, but anyway, the, the point is, is that when you're doing that, I don't know if you've ever listened to the um, Supreme Court argue about things, but they, if there's something that they don't know because it's not spelled out perfectly in the Constitution, then they literally start reading letters um, between the founding fathers and, you know, they literally start exchanging these things. And one of the things that, you know, that, that was pointed out to me was that, first of all, the founding fathers, as much as they're venerated by a lot of liberty minded people, you know, like I remember once talking to a libertarian and he said, you know, he said, well, you know, the founding fathers talked about private property. And I said, yeah, but they weren't perfect. He's like, what do you mean? I was like, well, they thought people were property. You know, the mm-hmm. fact that the majority of them were, you know, big slave owners at that time, you know, did not escape me. But the other major thing was that um, originally the colonies governed themselves through direct democratic referendums and town hall meetings where everybody participated in the process, kind of achieved a consensus. And if you as an individual didn't want to take part, you were free to go home. You know, it wasn't like anybody was going to come to your house and force you to do whatever the colony decided. Um, the problem is, is that when the founding fathers were trying to get the constitution passed, there were contingents within the United States that were against slavery. And then there were contingents within the United States that would not have approved the constitution if they were not allowed to have slaves. And whenever they tried to pass the constitution via direct democratic referendum, the elites who were primarily the ones who wanted to have slaves, because of course they own hundreds of them, um, kept finding that when they went to states where there was a lot of Quakers, for example, they they couldn't get the constitution ratified. So instead, they created this circumstance where they convinced everybody that democracy is super evil and that instead we should elect these representatives to go you know, to the Constitutional Convention for us and that they would better represent us. Now, the irony that Mike Gravel pointed out is that you're electing somebody through the same democratic process to represent you and that somehow escapes the issues of democracy, notwithstanding, because that's silly, is the fact that um, who do you think is going to win elections? For these delegate positions, especially in the colonial times, it's not like a blacksmith can say, you know what, I'm just going to not be a blacksmith in the next three months. I'm going to run to be a delegate to the convention. That's, of course, not going to happen. It was going to be the Mm -hmm. super wealthy who were going to get those positions. And then they went to the Constitutional Convention and they locked the doors and they didn't let anybody in. And the reason why was because what ended up coming out the other side was was a constitution ratified with legal slavery. Um, so the reason that I, I will go through all of this is that what eventually evolved out of this also was the party system. And George Washington being the only president that we've ever had in history who was not part of a political party because they were just coming into power right as he was leaving, said in his farewell address that he was very wary of the party system and that he was concerned that, that people would become more interested in what was best for their party and not what was best for the country and as if he was Nostradamus, that's exactly what happened. And, mm-hmm. and more to the point, not only did it happen, but just kind of like, say, you know, like a cartel, like the big three, uh, the car companies that just decided, well, we don't agree on a lot of things, but we do agree that we don't want any other major car companies. <laughs> you know, that's how yeah. you get the duopoly. The, the Democratic Party and, you know, the Republican Party will work together against the third parties. They like the system exactly the way it is. And that's why Ross Perot, who in my opinion was brilliant and you can still watch his infomercial um, that he had to purchase with his own money because the media was not giving him fair coverage. You can still watch it on YouTube and everything that guy said about NAFTA, every last part of it came true. Perfectly true. But he pointed out that he is not, you know, because he's an independent, 
He doesn't have any sway over the electorate so far as the Electoral College. So there was never really a chance for him to actually do it. And that's because the party system exists almost like a computer virus in our Constitution because it's not in our Constitution. You know, it's and a lot of people don't know that they, they think that this is how it's supposed to be. And that's why, you know, one of the reasons why I got back in the air was because even some of our independent um, political, you know, radio people and TV people are not really covering this correctly, in my opinion. They're not they're not talking about all of these idiosyncrasies. And one of them in particular was Jimmy Dore talking about Bernie Sanders was that Jimmy Dore keeps well, Jimmy Dore, for example, just outright reported on the fact that uh, there's obvious election fraud going on in the primary. Because the exit polls are in double digits, which by the United Nations standards would signal, yeah, that's that's fraud. But he would then in the same broadcast start lambasting Bernie Sanders and talking about how weak he is and how he's incompetent and his and his you know, he's a terrible strategy. And, you know, if, you know, and it, it just the irony of the fact that he just reported on the fact that that's voter that is fraud. And now you're bitching at the guy because of his strategy, failing at winning a rigged election is like telling a race car driver you're a terrible driver, even though his car was sabotaged before he even got off the, the starting line. So anyway, my, my point is, is that, you know, and people thought maybe that was crazy, but we have to remember that the Democratic Party is on official record in court defending themselves against the lawsuit from 2016 from people who were in the Democratic Party who wanted their money back when it was revealed that they fraudulently supported one candidate over another in saying that this is a private institution. We can select whoever we want. We can even just pick people in back rooms. Like that's not even a paraphrase. That's what the lawyers said. And they won. So, you know, that's why I said we have to end this, this, this party system because the only reason Trump was able to navigate it is because he had his own money. And the only reason, you know, why uh, essentially, you know, the reasons that other candidates will never have any success, like you said, anybody who dares to talk about the war. So you have Tulsi Gabbard, you know, who a lot of people in the progressive movement are currently, you know, saying that somehow it's Bernie's fault that she didn't get into the debates. And I usually have to point out to them, I'm like, you don't, military industrial complex will never let anybody who openly talks about this on a regular basis get anywhere. It will not happen. I, I watched it happen to Senator Mike Gravel. I watched it happen to mm-hmm. Congressman Dennis Kucinich. And I watched it happen to Ron Paul. But so the only way that we're ever going to be able to break this essentially is through having conversations like the ones I'm having with you right now. And that's why one of the reasons why I didn't debate with you, I let you have an opportunity to, to you know, share your views, because to me in the long run, and this is something else that I've said to people from multiple third parties who I'm friends with, is I would say, in general, most libertarians that I've spoken to have said that if they had a friend who was going to vote on the left, that they would prefer that their friend vote for, say, Jill Stein, as opposed to Hillary Clinton. And on the left, I have friends who without even the slightest hesitation, if I said, would you rather your right-leaning friends vote for a libertarian like Gary Johnson or Donald Trump? No question. You know, I would vote for Gary Johnson, and I'm not even a libertarian anymore. You know, that, that's what I'm saying. It's like, you know, it, I would definitely cast a vote for him if he was one of the options for me. So the problem is, is that we have been conditioned to think in these lines, and, and more to the point, there's almost like a social engineering thing that divides us with it. Because, um, so for example, I'm left-leaning, but I'm pro-gun rights. There's a mm-hmm. there's a loaded weapon five feet from me right now. So where do I go? Right. Well, I can't be a Democrat. And when I start talking about gun rights, I get told that well, you know they're like you darn Republicans. I'm like I- I'm not a Republican, you know. 
so, but I am pro healthcare. So, so where do I go? Because then I can't be pro gun rights. These things actually have nothing in common with each other, you know, and, and this is the element George Washington was trying to get at. We're, we're going to become our parties and not individual citizens. And that's why, um, you know, one of the other things that I, I found that was good, at least locally in Michigan, when I was running for Congress as a um, libertarian candidate was that the green party candidates was very helpful to me because the green party and the libertarian party worked together to be sure that their candidates got as much exposure as possible because they both recognized that it was in their best interest to help each other. You know, so I would get phone calls like, Hey, there's a debate over here. There's a voter forum over there. I actually got a lot of information from the green party and I was running against them, you know, um, and it's silly that, that we have to do that because obviously we want to be able to compete. But the reality is, is that at the end of the day, you know, the two party duopoly is all on the same team in, in the long run that they, they definitely agree on not having us around. Yeah. But, you know, so we have to be able to do the same thing. So, you know, I guess, thank you for, you know, yielding some of your time to my personal soapbox, but <laughs> did, did you have any comments that you wanted to make on any of the things I said? Yeah, no, that, I think that's exactly the the area that we need to start to wake up to. I wanted to add something though, that there is a vulnerability in the military industrial complex strategy, which is at least for the moment, they do need people. And so today we have the opportunity to you know, when you when you look at something that's truly stupid, you start to wonder, is that really a mistake or was that the plan? Driving up the cost of college to make it unaffordable is also a way to get more people to join the military because now there's a way to pay for this unaffordable college. And so a lot of these things are linked together. One of the things that I've been working very hard to do both as an educator and in, in, in politics is to encourage people to look at other solutions, to non-college, as, to non-college solutions, because no one actually holds the key to an education. No one can actually keep you from an education. No one can prevent you from developing the work ethic or the technical knowledge that you need. No one can stop you from doing it. They can only tell you that they can. But if we deeply recognize this truth, which is that you don't need college and therefore you don't need a GI Bill to pay for it, if you can, we can get that truth out there, we're going to see more people saying, you know, I don't want to go around shooting people for no reason, nor do I want to help people go around shooting people for no reason. I want to build something valuable, not just destroy somebody else's valuable thing. If people stop enlisting, the military industrial complex is going to have to fold. No, I don't disagree. And honestly, the military industrial complex is what got me into all this. Like what, you know, when I asked you that precipice moment moment question, my precipice Mm -hmm. moment was somebody sharing a video with me that unfortunately I don't think is available anymore, but it was called Ron Paul courageously tells the truth. And it was him debating with Rudy Giuliani about why we were attacked on nine 11 and discussing he, they didn't attack us because we were free. They attacked us because we've been bombing their countries for like 20 years, you know, and then he went on to talk about how we over, you know, overthrew the Shah of Iran and how we constantly meddle in all of their affairs. And I was like, wow, you know, that for me, was like a, a politician just said that out loud you know, and that's actually kind of brings me to one other point that I wanted to make is like, you know, we thought we had it bad in 2008. The Internet has created this crazy situation that people who are not who are not alive pre-Internet don't realize it. You know, back when, like, say, Dukakis was running against Bush. Sure. You didn't have any control over seeing any other candidates. They didn't exist. Right. You know, the, the, the mainstream media had total control over who you saw. 
And the, and the decision on who you voted for was made almost entirely by the debate. And people who don't recognize that now we are in a much better position. So um, anyway, Arvin, I'd like to be able to call you off the air and talk to you a little bit after the show, if that's okay with you. Um, uh, sure, and, you have a couple minutes for my next thing. Yeah, it doesn't need to be long. So sure, sure. thank you, everybody, for tuning in. And um, just do me a favor. And, uh, you know, the only thing I ask in return for doing these broadcasts is to share this show. Uh, again, you know, a lot of my content, you know, you may not agree with some of it, but I guarantee you any out-of-the-box thinking activist is going to be able to find something in my archives. So I appreciate it. I'm going to go ahead and play a clip, and then we're out of here. Starring the mad prophet of the airways, Howard Beale. of the Union Broadcasting Systems, and he died at 11 o'clock this morning of a heart condition, and woe is us. We're in a lot of trouble. So, a rich little man with white hair died. What has that got to do with the price of rice, right? And why is that woe to us? Because you people... And 62 million other Americans are listening to me right now because less than 3% of you people read books. Because less than 15% of you read newspapers. Because the only truth you know is what you get over this tube. Right now, there is a whole, an entire generation that never knew anything that didn't come out of this tube. This tube is the gospel, the ultimate revelation. This tube can make or break presidents, popes, prime ministers. This tube is the most awesome goddamn force in the whole godless world. And woe is us if it ever falls into the hands of the wrong people. And that's why woe is us that Edward George Ruddy died. Because this company is now in the hands of CCA, the Communication Corporation of America. There's a new chairman of the board, a man called Frank Hackett, sitting in Mr. Ruddy's office on the 20th floor. And when the 12th largest company in the world controls the most awesome goddamn propaganda force in the whole godless world, who knows what shit will be peddled for truth on this network. So you listen to me. Listen to me. Television is not the truth. Television is a goddamn amusement park. Television is a circus, a carnival, a traveling troupe of acrobats, storytellers, dancers, singers, jugglers, sideshow freaks, lion tamers, and football players. We're in the boredom-killing business. So if you want the truth, go to God. Go to your gurus. Go to yourselves. Because that's the only place you're ever going to find any real truth. But man, you're never going to get any truth from us. We'll tell you anything you want to hear. We lie like hell. We'll tell you that uh, Kojak always gets the killer and that nobody ever gets cancer in Archie Bunker's house. And no matter how much trouble the hero is in, don't worry, just look at your watch. At the end of the hour, he's going to win. We'll tell you any shit you want to hear. We deal in illusions, man. None of it is true. But you people sit there day after day, night after night, all ages, colors, creeds. 
We're all you know. You're beginning to believe the illusions we're spinning here. You're beginning to think that the tube is reality and that your own lives are unreal. You do whatever the tube tells you. You dress like the tube. You eat like the tube. You raise your children like the tube. You even think like the tube. This is mass madness, you maniacs. In God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion. So turn off your television sets, turn them off now, turn them off right now, turn them off and leave them off, turn them off right in the middle of the sentence I'm speaking to you now, turn them off!